And here we are, another episode of Rob Observations. Welcome to Rob Observations. I am Rob Liefeld. I make the comic books. I talk about the comic books. We are going to jump right in today. Uh, skipping steps, moving uh, way ahead in time, but I think you're going to have a good time. I think you're going to enjoy yourself. Marvel Comics has re-released uh, a new edition of Captain America Heroes Reborn. Captain America Heroes Reborn, it came out this week, August 2020. It uh, reprints my uh, relaunch of Captain America, which saw a complete reboot of the title in the interests of uh, getting Captain America, the Avengers, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man, the the basically the original Stanley Jack Kirby uh, canon of Marvel characters and, and relaunching them to get young readers, new readers, old readers excited, and uh, put those characters back at the top of the charts. This succeeded beyond everybody's wildest imaginations. And it was an amazing time that reflects a lot of tumultuous action going on on the business end of comics as well as the creative end of comics. It saw Marvel Comics reach out to its rivals at Image Comics, where myself and Jim Lee, who was my co-conspirator, partner in crime, splitting 50-50 the responsibilities of Heroes Reborn. It saw Marvel team with its rival. That action in and of itself would pit rivals against each other within Image. I mean, this is soap opera stuff. This is some amazing stuff. And with this release of this collection and with these crazy comic book times we live in, I thought that this week, better than any other week, would be the perfect time to revisit this, reflect. Uh, people were showing me that they had bought this new edition of Captain America Heroes Reborn yesterday as it uh, came out this week as it hits. It is the fifth reprinting of Captain America, Heroes Reborn, it has been uh, in multiple uh, trade collections, soft cover trade collections, generally running between 40 bucks, 40, 50 bucks a pop. It has been in uh, a number of hardcover editions, uh, omnibuses. So we got the new edition uh, th this, this week. There was even a sequel, which I'll cover at some point, called Onslaught Reborn, which brought me back to revisit all of this. But let's start together here. In September 1996, it's the week that Captain America, number one, part of this controversial Heroes Reborn, controversial because of everything I'm going to cover, some of which I already have tickled your ears with, you know, just the fact that Jim Lee and myself were were, were given these oppor this opportunity, which, which goes deeper than just the comics you hold in your hand. There's so much behind the stories within the stories, within the stories. And we're going to cover it here. We're going to leave no stone unturned. This is going to be a multi-part uh, story. You are listening to part one today. This is part one. And in September of 1996, Captain America number one hits. It is the afternoon of the day that the book is launched. Myself and some of my staff from Extreme Studios, a studio that I had that uh, at our peak, we had 65 on-site employees. We put out 22 comics a month. Yes, that is greater than five comics a week going out our doors. We were a full-fledged creative 
uh, uh, powerhouse, and we produced all manner of comics, had multiple lines, and uh, my staff, uh, Matt Hawkins, who is now at Top Cow, and Joseph Loeb III, you know him as Jeff Loeb on on uh, uh, executive producer of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of Netflix's Daredevil, of Cloak and Dagger on, on Freeform, of, of The Defenders on Netflix, of Luke Cage, of Jessica Jones. Jeff has long been a part of Marvel, and uh, at, on this day, he is attending this signing with me at Mile High Comics in Anaheim, California. Mile High had their very biggest store, the size of a blockbuster video, a traditional blockbuster video. That's maybe even a little bigger. This was a giant location on Harbor Boulevard, just down the street from Disneyland. And as we pulled up, this enormous line that went out of this giant blockbuster store, of which we're, we're going to sign all the way in the back. So the line runs all the way through the store, goes out the door, goes to the right, goes all the way through the parking lot, then stretches and forms another uh, line that goes further down the sidewall of the parking lot. The parking lot is packed. The cars are everywhere. You can see people have copies of Captain America, Heroes Reborn, number one in their hand. And Jeff Loeb's eyes are as big as saucers. You guys, I've been doing this for a while. I I, 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 I watched New Mutants turn into X-Force, sell five million copies. I watched Youngblood number one launch the Image Comics Empire and and, and sold, signed for six hours the day that it came out uh, in, in, in downtown Los Angeles. This was common to me. I, I, had, I have been to this rodeo before. Jeff Loeb's eyes were as big as saucers. And he goes, are these the kind of signings that you do? I, I, I've never had a signing like this before. He turns to me. He is just completely bewildered. Jeff is probably 10 years older than me and was just, uh, it was a, uh, an absolute joy. I am, you know, maybe 29, 28 at this time. And uh, I, I am, I'm either 28 or 29. I, I will turn 29 a few days, about a month from the launch of this. And because uh, this is 1996 and Jeff is just overjoyed. He, 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 he is short on breath. He is just like excited and it's coming off of him. And he has told me since. That day, biggest signing he's ever been to. Mile High Comics, launch Captain America, Heroes Reborn number one. We shuffle in past everybody. Chuck Rosansky, the biggest retailer in America in 1996, ushers us to where we're going to sign. And you guys, maybe the signing started at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. I just know we wrapped up around 8 o'clock. We had signed everything everybody had. Uh, it was just a tremendous, a great time. But the entire time, Jeff can't stop smiling because he is so excited to be a part of this crazy ride called Captain America, Rob Liefeld, and Heroes Reborn. So, uh, and the reason he's so excited is because he really wasn't there at the inception. He was the last guy added uh, after I gave him a call and recruited him to join me uh, in the final kind of moments as Captain America number one was ticking down and I needed someone to script over my story. But that is getting ahead of itself. I, I just wanted to paint that picture. The day it came out, the excitement, um, and, 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 and from Matt Hawkins to Jeff Loeb to Chuck Rosansky, they will tell you what a great and fun signing that was. Captain America number one was a 52-page story 
I did 52 page pages in that comic book and uh, to launch this new direction. But it started in 1994. We are going to go all the way back two full years when the publisher of Image Comics, a gentleman named Larry Martyr, a gentleman who I uh, admire very much, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed all my time with Larry, and Larry was kind of like a super spy. Uh, he kind of served, at that point, six different masters. He was trying to please Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, and Jim Valentino simultaneously as the publisher to six publishing houses that at that time made the core of Image Comics. I say six because many people do not uh, remember Wills Portacio shortly left the ownership group right upon us launching. So it's Jim Lee, it's Rob, it's Todd, it's Mark, it's Eric, it's Valentino. Okay, that's your Image Core. Those are your guys. Larry Martyr was the publisher. He was just down the hallway from me because the Image offices and the Extreme Studios offices were basically the entire 10th floor of the building in downtown Anaheim that overlooked Angel Stadium. You could um, see into Angel Stadium from the vantage point of our uh, views looking out over the stadium, the stadium parking lot right off the um, 57 freeway in, in uh, Anaheim, California, baby. You, you have driven past that uh, building so many times on Catella where so many image comics and so many extreme comics were produced. Well, one afternoon, Larry Martyr approached me, came in, said, you got a minute, sat down and said, I just got the weirdest call. There is new management at Marvel Comics. I'm not sure that you know. I did not know. I was totally engaged in making the extreme comic books, which were Youngblood, Prophet, Brigade, Bloodstrike, Supreme, Glory. We had just started a, started a new label called Maximum Press that was not associated with Image that I owned 100% of, uh, which had titles called War Child and Evangeline. Evangeline was our breakthrough runaway hit. Uh, I had just, um, we also published our licensed material there, like Battlestar Galactica, which I had convinced Universal Studios to make a comic book with for the first time in 20 years. So we were having such a great time and uh, making our own books. And I wasn't following Marvel Comics. I wasn't buying a lot of Marvel Comics at the time. I knew that X Men and Spider Man were their go to because that's how it was when we left when myself and Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane were at the helm and making the X-Men and Spider-Man books the premier books in the industry. We took that momentum, we took that heat, we had started Image Comics, it was a runaway tremendous success of which, you know, if you were there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We will cover those stories at some other time, but today we have skipped all the way to 1994, 1996, and the in this master plan by Marvel Comics, who was headed by new management. A gentleman named Jerry Calabrese was taking over as publisher. He came from a train company, Lionel Trains, which had entertained kids like myself when we were five and six years old, was the number one kind of toy model train company. He was segueing from that to run Marvel Comics under their new management. And he had a uh, executive with him very dapper man, always dressed in the best suits, southern gentleman named Joe King. So if you said it together, Joe King. He was always joking, but it was J-O-E-K-I-N-G. And he had come from TNT, from Turner Broadcasting, so he had a television background. They had extended an offer to Larry Martyr to talk to the guys in Image Comics. Would we be open 
to rejoining Marvel Comics and producing some new titles from them, specifically books that they wanted to uh, have uh, the limelight put back on. X-Men and Spider-Man were very successful. They were basically running themselves no matter who did it. Sal Buscema, Mark Begley, Alex Saviak, uh, you know, wh whomever. There was a uh, rotating list of people at Marvel doing uh, the, the, the Marvel Comics uh, X-Men titles from Scott Lobdell to Howard Mackey to Jeff Loeb was doing X-Force, making his name doing uh, uh, X-Force. And, and, and so, and there was all manner of different artists from the brand new Joe Maliera to the Kubert brothers. Everybody was, um, contributing to the X-Men canon. So X-Men and Spider-Man was continuing to be successful. Captain America, Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Iron Man, the kind of original tenets of the Marvel Universe, the, 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 the ground stones, the, the, the bedrock of the Marvel Universe started by Stan and Jack had fallen on hard times. They were selling in the 24, 26,000 range when the top comic was selling about 300,000 on a good day. And, 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 and a top comic was selling in the 250,000 range, okay? Captain America specifically had entered into a storyline at the time called Cap Wolf. And Captain America had um, become a werewolf. Now, if just you can look those comics up. Uh, imagine a werewolf as traditionally drawn, wearing Captain America's costume. As ridiculous and ludicrous and insane as this sounds, it was happening. There's an issue where Capital battled Cable that someone put on my desk because, of course, having created Cable, they thought I would enjoy seeing this. And uh, Cap Wolf is jumping. He is a werewolf in Captain America's costume, wearing a shield. I can barely keep a straight face telling you this. He is jumping uh, down glass shards as if he came through a window and Cable is grabbing his big Cable gun to anticipate his falling on him on this cover. This was a long-standing storyline, and I believe it was marking around 10 years that the incredibly talented Mark Grunewald had been writing Captain America. Mark took over Cap in the late 80s and is responsible for giving you so many great stories uh introducing the captain uh who was the captain america in the black costume who then pivoted to become the u.s agent uh he did so many great and fun and exciting storylines and was the uh go-to reliable guy who gave you your captain america stories from uh, 1987 through now 1994, so we're talking eight years he's been on the book. Now, as we've talked on this show before, talent runs out of uh, steam sometimes. You're, you're, you, you, that head of steam slows down, and it's like you need a new tank of gas, you need a new jolt, you need the, 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 the you know, jumper cables to hit you, because even Walt Simonson, even Frank Miller, on their stellar runs on Daredevil and Thor, year three, year four, was a little bit of a stretch. Five years on of John Byrne on Fantastic Four was a bit much. You can tell their interest wanes. Uh, maybe they go for some shock value stuff. Maybe they have to turn the book sideways in order to um, even interest them, themselves into waking up that morning and doing those pages because having it on a horizontal landscape instead of vertical is maybe what's going to get that guy through that issue as John Byrne took the Fantastic Four to the negative zone and turned the comic sideways. Uh, in his third year on the book, okay? So, having been on this book that long, I just assumed, you know, uh, 
Mark Grunewald wanted to do Cap Wolf as kind of like a shock and awe. Because it, it did invoke shock and awe. Maybe not the shock and awe they had anticipated. Um, the top guys weren't uh, drawing the book. If I told you who was drawing the book, I think his name is Rick Levins. Levins, L-E-V-I-N-S. I have never met Rick Levins. Um, he was not a guy that I would hear much from prior or after because, again, the book uh, was not attracting the top flight talent. They were drawn to Spider-Man and to the X-Men title. Also hitting on some tough times was the Fantastic Four, which was a book that was in free fall pretty much the entire 90s. It's been parodied. Sue Storm was basically at one point wearing the equivalent of a thong, a bikini, because they thought, well, the men of the 90s want the sexy ladies, so we're going to make Sue Storm into a sexy lady. At one point, Thing was a woman, and so it was weird seeing a female version of the Thing um, that they gave the Fantastic Four all of like big giant cable guns and and, and and Reed Richards was stretching around with a giant laser rifle. These are the images and the stories that I remember. And it was just, they didn't really know what to do with the Fantastic Four. They kept chasing trends and making Fantastic Four reflect whatever they thought was kind of cool and hip in comics. And um, I don't know what version or what armor Iron Man was on. And the Avengers had become a bunch of guys who wore biker jackets uh, and had weapons and it was another kind of attempt to emulate what was going on with X-Force. Now, I'll get, I'll get to some of why I think this was going on uh, short, shortly, maybe, hopefully in this episode, because this is going to take several episodes to walk you through this time. Bottom line, all the books were selling in the 25000 range, which was barely a break-even. If that, they were not respectable by any means, and a far cry from being hot comics or comic books with any sort of momentum. So when reaching out to us, you have to understand, on New Mutants, which we will eventually cover, but I can tell you here, New Mutants was about to get canceled when they gave it to me. It was the lowest selling by a wide margin of the X-Men related comics, and it was such a, there was such a disparity between its sales and the next best selling X-Men book that it was glaring. Uh, you know, you had X-Men, X-Factor, and Wolverine, and they were all selling to 300 to 600,000 copies, 600,000 being the top X-Men, maybe 500,000 for Wolverine, 400,000 for X-Factor, and then you had 115, one five, 115,000 on New Mutants before I came on it. We would end up turning that around 300,000, 400,000, 500,000. We, our last issue of New Mutants with no gimmicks, we sold a million copies. Okay, so I love fixer-uppers. I love the challenge. Challenges excite me. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, currently, I am doing a G.I. Joe comic because I thought G.I. Joe was getting the shaft and not getting the attention he deserved. And we have succeeded in turning a ton of attention onto G.I. Joe. And Snake Eyes, number one, did um, very well. We quadrupled the sales. I love fixer-uppers. I love flipping the comic book houses and, and getting them back up to speed. That's what this entire Heroes Reborn project reeked up. It wasn't called Heroes Reborn at this time. It was just, would we want to come back to the core titles? My answer was yes, if I can have Captain America. I had a story. I always had a story for Captain America. If they let me on Captain America, I was an automatic yes. Apparently, this was also floated to Todd McFarlane, who summarily, as I understand it, from the mouth of Jerry Calabrese, who was now the publisher of Marvel, 
and Joe King, the superior executive, they had said, Todd, turn them down wholesale. I don't want any part of this. Larry has floated this also to Jim Lee. Jim Lee is intrigued. He is willing to uh, investigate this. So at the time, it's just myself and Jim Lee who have been approached, and we want to uh, uh, walk through this and see if a deal can be made. Jim has ideas and parameters of what a deal could be. I have the parameters and ideal idea of what a deal can be. And Larry Martyr agrees to assist us in managing this, even though he is the publisher of Image Comics by serving uh, and having Jim Lee and I both pay his salary along with the other guys. He is willing to um, go with us, attend some meetings, and see if this can get put together. And a matter of fact, he has the very first meeting with Jerry Calabrese where they lay out what they would like to do, what they're willing to pay and invest. And Jerry and, and Jerry and, and Larry have Jerry and Larry. They have a conversation. They have coffee. Uh, they they, they uh, you know discuss the possibilities, how this could look, what shape this could take. Larry comes back, he uh, talks to Jim and myself. We agree to go up and this, see if a business deal can be put together. Uh, we go up to Burbank and to Los Angeles where Marvel has their studios and we sit in a giant meeting room with a man named Bill uh, and and uh, I want to call him Bill Butterworth but I, I'm not sure that's his name. But I know his name's Bill and we sat across from Bill with long legal pads Jim and I sketching and writing down numbers in between as we all talked about the possibilities of what was to come. How many issues? How many years? Which characters? Who was paying what for who? For when? You know, how many writers, inkers, colorists? You know, what kind of paper? Uh, what kind of promotions? All this stuff is nailed out in these really boring meetings where the creatives, myself and Jim, just want to get about to creating comic books. But in order to take our time and effort, uh, and our interests and, and talent and invest them into this away from image, this was going to be a deal that we had to ensure would make the most sense for us. And also, guys, when you're negotiating deal, you want to know that the other party is going to put enough money into promoting it to make it worth your time. Well, I got the sense very early on after I met with Jerry Calabrese that he was very sincere in, in in shaking things up. Marvel was in a weird place at that time. Uh, they were actually in this interim kind of shift of, of ownership. And, and, and I'll back that up a little. The guy who owned Marvel Comics was a man named Ron Perlman. And he had uh, bought Marvel and very shortly thereafter bought the toy company that was making the Marvel action figures, Toy Biz. Many of you bought a kajillion toy biz toys. Spider-Man, X-Men, those were their best sellers. They were all over every Walmart, Target, Kmart, KB Toys, Toys R Us, uh, Toy City, all of it. The, the toy biz Marvel toys were huge in 19, the 1990s, uh, all through the 90s. And so they bought that company. They took on that company. They bought it. They owned it outright. So now Marvel Comics and Toy Biz is owned by Ron Perlman. He then decides that he's going to buy Panini, which is an international publisher of Marvel Comics, and they also have a giant sticker and trading card business. And Panini is then bought. All these companies are expensive. These cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. And so Marvel's ledger is getting heavier and heavier and heavier with 
uh, unfortunately, with red ink because they are going into the debt category carrying the price that everybody is asking and Ron Perlman is paying. Ron is basically paying high, paying on the high end for all these companies. Panini, Toy Biz, Marvel, and there's more. And in the, in the process of doing this deal, he buys his own distributor. He's tired of the traditional distribution networks that are Diamond and Capital Distribution. They were the number one and two distributors in all of the United States, and they covered the international market. But retailers either bought their books from Capital or they bought their books from Diamond, and some had accounts at both distributors. You were able to pick and choose based on who treated you the better, who treated you the best, or who gave you the best financial terms. And you were able to play Diamond and Capital off to some degree, and it kept both of them honest. They were always trying to work to keep your business at one or the other and wanted to secure you at one instead of the other. So Capital and Diamond had this very competitive, uh, very, very uh, competitive nature that they were uh, competing against. But Capital was taking on a ton of debt and would eventually crush them and they would fold. Marvel buys the number three small uh, East Coast, I believe it's New Jersey-based distributor called Heroes World. Heroes World was a, at best, a secondary distributor. They bought their books and distributed them basically on the Eastern Seaboard. Not a lot of West Coast business. Eastern Seaboard. But Marvel, someone tells Ron Perlman, it's a good idea. You should also buy a distributor. And if you're going to buy a distributor, you bet you're going to only distribute your comics. So Heroes World is not going to now, under the purchase of Ron Perlman, added to his portfolio of Toy Biz, Panini, and Marvel Comics, Heroes World is going to only, exclusively, distribute Marvel Comics. So you have to open an account with them and you have to order from them. They will not be dealing with Diamond or what's left of Capital soon. It's only going to be Diamond. And Heroes World is going to function and stand on its own, which means they have to staff up because now you're not just feeding the Eastern Seaboard. You have got to feed all the all the comic retailers on the Western, on the West Coast. You know, up and down the Pacific, in the middle of the country, Texas. You know, all of the different comic book stores have to be attended to. So to excite people, they wanted to give an exclusive product. And that exclusive product would be the launch of Heroes Reborn. Not just Spider-Man, not just X-Men, but now you want to know why you're going to be excited? You're going to be excited because Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, two of the biggest names in the comic book business, are coming back to Marvel to reboot and refresh these characters and give them to you in this all-new, exciting uh, storyline that you're not going to want to miss out on. Big image guys returning home to Marvel, coming back from where they left in 1992. Now, uh, kind of, if you can't beat them, you join them. There was, there was a lot of that being said. And Jim and I, were we knew the controversy of the task because... Part of our deal, and here's where the controversy really starts. It's not just coming to us to get us to write and draw these comics. They are going to outsource them completely. We are going to have complete editorial control of Cap, The Avengers, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man. Again, all of these books, maybe The Avengers is selling 30,000. The Avengers has Hercules, Black Knight, um, Circe, Black Knight, and Hercules wear, wear, wear leather jackets. 
they're, they're, they're kind of like, uh, they don't have traditional superhero costumes anymore. They are now outfitted to kind of look like how the X-Force characters look. And uh, again, Fantastic Four, can't decide what it is. Captain America, at this time, is a werewolf. Never lose sight that when I was hired to do this, because this is going to get really interesting, Cap was a werewolf. Of course I said yes. This is an easy fixer-upper. This is super simple. I know exactly what to do. I have the story. I have the ideas. I'm excited about this. I feel like this is kind of like, I even feel like it's my destiny. You know, Captain America is such an iconic character. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a young American, born and raised. I've, I've, I've been raised on this stuff. I had stars and stripes in my eyes, guys. Straight up. I was up for this task. I thought I had the story to tell. Jim at Acquiesce said, look, you want Cap? Cap's all yours. I'll take Fantastic Four. And we, knowing that under my umbrella would be the Avengers and under his umbrella would be Iron Man. So really it's the Avengers and the Fantastic Four families with the two big titles being Cap and Fantastic Four. And then Avengers and Iron Man would be split. I would end up, because, come on, how many times, you, back at that, in that day, how many times are you going to draw an Avengers number one? I decided I was also going to, in addition to Captain America, I would draw a large portion of the Avengers as well. I mean, why not? I, I, I'm, I'm biting it all off, okay? Biting it all off. Can't wait to get started. Can't wait to get going here. So, we are looking down the barrel of being given complete creative control. We will basically deliver discs. There were no computer uploads. You didn't upload in any sort of capacity. There was not high-speed Wi-Fi, okay? You either um, mailed discs and, and cassettes and tapes, or it didn't happen. So we would send in our discs to Marvel, who would then send them to the printer. Those discs would be done. You got a 22-page, an average 22-page uh, comic book story that was written and illustrated by our respective studios, Jim's Wildstorm, My Extreme, and they would send them to press under these new this new uh, collective agreement that had Jim and I rebooting this, what we would call pocket universe. Because early on, it was decided that they couldn't have this happen within the established Marvel universe. That would be too disruptive. And they would have to create another event in order to uh, lead into this, which is great. Another reason to make Heroes World so exciting. But the end, the event leading up to this is still being carried by Diamond. They're not out of Diamond yet. They've announced they've bought Heroes World. They're going to get up and running. And the first exclusive stuff that's going to be carried by them is the launch of Heroes Reborn. Now, when I said it was a tumultuous time, because of all this different financial um, stress going on in the company and the numbers not being great. I mean, there's a reason they called us. They called us because things weren't great. You don't reach out to your rivals unless you need to, unless, you know, all roads lead to this being a necessity. And to his credit, Jerry Calabrese, I'm sure, came under huge criticism, but is the new boss, somebody coming from an outside source from a, from a toy company, not somebody who had been uh, promoted or advanced from within. That's really important to understand. He wasn't somebody within the system. He was coming from outside the system, hired by Ron Perlman, and put with this Turner uh, broadcast executive, and again, TNT, TBS, all from the Turner broadcast system, a part of Ted Turner's giant empire. Uh, 
Joe King came from a media empire, and he came in order to oversee with Jerry this new vision for Marvel Comics, which includes relaunching the old standards, the classic, the golden oldies, with myself and Jim, and making them fresh and new. I knew we were up to it. Marvel Editorial was at that time being split into five different editor-in-chiefs. They had had an interim uh, staff where Bob Harris, Bobby Chase, Mark Grudewald, maybe Ralph Macchio, and another, doesn't matter, it was five. Five of them. I'm going to tell you that during this time, I don't know what it was, it was like to work at Marvel. I was not on the East Coast. I have forever been based out here in Orange County. And at the time, again, my Extreme Studios, Image Comics, were in that building overlooking Anaheim, uh, overlooking the, Anaheim, the Angels of Anaheim, okay? So, so, so we are an Orange County company. I'm an Orange County kid. I've always been based on the West Coast. Um, I don't know what it was like at Marvel. I heard it was difficult. I heard it was, you know, uncertain. But what I know for 100% certainty is that the stories coming out of Marvel was that there was a lot of chaos and five different masters and playing off each other. So the reason I'm telling you this is one day as we are finishing our contracts, Jerry Calabrese, we are not signed. We are not signed, sealed, or delivered, but there's the idea that this is going to come together. This is going to happen. Um, They're going to give us the deals that we are looking for, the guarantees per the books, and I'll get to it in a minute. Jim and I decided, why wouldn't we get signing bonuses? Why wouldn't we get signing bonuses? Why wouldn't we be treated like athletes? They are recruiting us. They are doing this uh, giant deal with us. It's, it's, it's history making. It's, we're taking as big a risk as they are. Um, we want signing bonuses. So I'll get to that in a little while. So this was an exciting contract. But while we're doing this, and it, the feeling is inevitable that we're going to come together, Jerry Calabrese, Joe King, come to see Jim and I in, in, in unison. Jim comes to Anaheim. Because they're in L.A. and it's closer for them to drive to Orange County than to drive all the way down to San Diego. Jim comes to my offices. We all sit in my big meeting room with Jerry and Joe and Larry Martyr. And they say, we are in the process of picking a new editor-in-chief. This five different editor-in-chiefs, this doesn't work for us. Uh, I want to see who you guys would be comfortable working with since you're going to have to you know, deal with these guys. And they gave us their two contenders. They had two contenders. I will not list the person who did not get the job, but the other one was Bob Harris. Bob Harris, who had opened the door and given me the keys to reboot, reinstall the New Mutants as a franchise. He hired me under the auspices that I would be taking over the book 100%, that the writer who was on the book would be ushered off in a matter of issues, that I could in enact my entire vision and because, again, I've mentioned before, the New Mutants book, the biggest problem with the New Mutants book in 1988 was that it did not reflect the youth culture that it uh, uh, purported to reflect. Not at all. These characters all look like they were in 1983 when it was 1988, 1989. In fashion, everything changed. Nobody looked like Madonna or Billy Idol anymore, but the lead characters in the New Mutants looked like Madonna and Billy Idol. And how they looked in 1983, big bows and... and, and, and and, uh, and, and, you know, bare chested with, with leather jackets and, and, and the girls had giant bows in their hair like Madonna did during the holiday, her first album. And, and, and they had, uh, you know, um, jumpers and it, it just didn't reflect the time. They looked odd and out of it. 
and, and the people making the book weren't young. I was young. When I was given the New Mutants, I was 20 years old. So I was in the youth culture, absorbing MTV 24-7, always on, always looking up. And MTV was really the place where the youth were at. So having given me the New Mutants, turning it into X-Force, introducing Cable, Deadpool, Domino, all these characters that changed the fortunes of the company, I love Bob. I knew that he had believed in me. For four years, we had nothing but the best relationship. We made Marvel a ton of money together, and the relationship was fun, and it was easy. And for Jim Lee, he gave Jim Lee the keys to the X-Men. Had Jim Lee relaunch X-Men, put all the focus where he wanted it, back on Wolverine, and Wolverine-themed concepts and ideas, and sexy women like Psylocke, and the book went on to be uh, the number one bestseller of all time. X-Men and X-Force, number one and number two. I didn't think 30 years ago that those numbers would stay. Those numbers stayed. So they want us to pick between these two names. Jim and I, in unison, throw our weight behind Bob. Bob's your guy. Bob knows what he's doing. Bob's been there. Bob can deliver you hits. We like working with Bob. Now, I understand that whoever's getting the job is still going to be at odds with us because the entire editorial, and maybe more, uh, aspect of Marvel, division of Marvel was against this because the idea was that if Rob and Jim can succeed and turn these 25,000 unit sellers into 300,000 sellers, uh, I'll just cut you off right here. We did. We did that. Um, if they can do that, then what's to stop the new company from outsourcing to them and all of us are going to lose our jobs? This is a legitimate concern. It was never lost on me. We tried to be as kind and courteous and aware of this the entire time, both Jim and myself, even though the idea in New York was we can't be rooting for these guys. They're going to succeed and take our jobs. And so we are on the West Coast feeling this at all times. Our contracts, all our demands are finally met. We, Jim and I, split. Six million dollars for this job. We were each given three million dollars in 1996 as our portion of what we would contribute to Heroes Reborn. Think that's a lot of money? My first issue of Captain America generated a million dollars for Marvel Comics. One million dollars. That's a three dollar comic. You were, you forget you were buying a three dollar comic and at 300 plus thousand units it generated a million dollars for marvel comics and you can just bet your bottom dollar avengers also generated a million fantastic four generated a million ba basically they made four million of the six million they invested invested three million each to jim and myself they made that back in the first month they made four million back by the second month they were playing with house money Heroes Reborn was ridiculously successful. We were to fly to New York to sign our contracts in the offices of Marvel Comics. Jim would take the pen. I would take the pen. We would sit there like athletes on signing day in the executive branch of Marvel with Jerry Calabrese, with Joe King, their legal counsel, our counsel, Larry Martyr was there. We would then be ushered off. This was all prearranged to a press conference. Bob Harris and Stan Lee had flown in. Well, Stan Lee had flown in. He, he lived on the West Coast with us. And Bob Harris had been named as editor-in-chief. Now, this is uh, December 
of or January of 1996 in August of 1995, knowing full well that we were doing this deal, that the memos had been agreed upon. I passed Bob Harris in the Marriott during the San Diego Comic Convention. Uh, you know, the Marriott, the Hilton, the Hyatt, those are the big hotels that everybody hangs out with. I was the Marriott that year, and uh, Bob Harris was racing down the curved hall that faces the gift shop. Those of you who've been at the Marriott, you know what I'm talking about. It's the hall that now connects where the Starbucks and the food center, the food court is, with the, the lobby where you check in. And we are, you know, like everybody moves to San Diego Comic-Con, you're moving a thousand miles an hour. And Bob is coming by me, and I stop, I go, Bob! I just want to congratulate you. He goes, on what? I said, Bob, you're the new EIC. And he says, I am? I said, Bob, what are you talking about? They haven't told you yet? Yes, we were informed. We were informed, you know, because we're doing this deal. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. He goes, are you, are you serious? I said, Bob, Jim and I threw our weight behind you. You are the EIC, man. And, and I said, I know we're going to have our differences, but congratulations on making editor-in-chief. And Bob just smiled and blinked at me and said, thanks, man. Really, thanks a lot. And I said, I guess I wasn't supposed to tell you because I didn't know you didn't know. So I guess just, I guess keep it on the down low for now. And we both went our separate ways. Me back to the center and him somewhere into the Marriott because he was going in the direction of the lobby and I was going in the direction of exiting. So that is how far and how long we had known that we were doing these books. But here's the wrinkle. Uh, it took a year to negotiate these deals. Cap Wolf. Uh, is a year in the rearview mirror. I never in a million years thought it would take this long. But Cap Wolf is uh, has is no longer happening, and the idea that Jim and Rob are coming has been known at Marvel for months. It's It's been... It, they, they couldn't hide it. It was something so out in the open, and so many people knew about it, that it had to be discussed, and it had to be you know made aware. And there, again, there was this paranoia, and there was, there, there was this resentment. And when Jim and I go to New York to sign our contracts and we have the presses coming in and there's a you know an entire press corps that's there to report on them talking about our return myself and Jim Lee's triumphant return to Marvel Comics to shepherd the Stan Lee creations to all new heights of, of, of sales and success and commercial appeal uh, you know when we're there the Marvel brass, the editorial level, the guys who make the comic books, because we're dealing with the executives and Jerry and Joe, and now Bob is in, in the in-between. He's the EIC, fully installed as editor-in-chief now at this press conference in the winter, and, uh, and, and, and he's straddling both worlds. He's got to make business happy and keep editorial happy. That's part of his job as editor-in-chief, that he accepted, that we helped him get, we Absolutely, Jim couldn't. Jim and I could not have more enthusiastically thrown our weight behind him getting that job. He, uh, the, the 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 rest of the staff was very cool to us. There was a wonderful, lovely man named Jim Kruger. He is a writer of all sorts of amazing things, in, including um, Marvel's giant, uh, uh, the 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 Earth X saga legacy. Everything that he's done. Earth X with Alex Ross and his own foot soldiers and so many other comments in between. Jim Kruger started in the sales and marketing and publicity department. He pulled us aside to have us do an interview with him. They were going to run in their dedicated Marvel magazine because Marvel also produced their own wizard magazine now. They were tired of not getting 
favorable coverage in the pages of a big fan magazine who was kind of ruffling everybody's feathers at the time, they decided, well, we're Marvel Comics. We'll create our own Marvel Wizard magazine that only covers Marvel. You're getting a theme here. You're starting to detect they, they, they bought the toy company. They bought the sticker company. They had their own studio making the cartoons, Marvel Animation. They had Marvel Publishing. They bought a distributor. I mean, now they are making their own fan magazine. And so they went to sit down to talk to Jim and I, and Jim and I laughed openly at how resentful everybody was on the floor to us, and they confirmed, yeah, man, there's people hate this. People hate that this is happening. And it is always comforting to know that the parent company that you are working with who has hired you, who is paying you a shit ton of money, has an entire staff of people who are rooting for you to fail. That, in a nutshell, is Heroes Reborn. The entirety of Marvel Comics was rooting for us to fail. Outside of Jerry Calabrese, Joe King, that was it. They had committed sizable dollars, sizable budgets, budgets on top of the money Jim and I were getting paid personally. And when we signed, our big, giant, fat, like two-foot-long contracts, they gave us our signing bonuses. Jim and I got $350,000 a piece, a piece, $350,000 and $350,000 just to sign the contracts. We had negotiated that. We thought that would be fun. Come on, this is a big, giant Marvel Comics company. I mean, they're, they're buying companies left and right. They have the money to do this. And if they want us, they'll step up and they'll do this. And I'm not sure what other talent out there has gotten signing bonuses, but we got them. And I do remember getting on the flight to go home that night, reaching in my art bag and going, I got a signing bonus. I'm, I'm in the comic book industry, but I feel like a, a, a professional athlete. I got a signing bonus for putting, for completing the deal. And it felt good, and it felt awesome. The press conference went great. Uh, we had our images that we were doing, and Stan had pulled me aside and said, Rob, I just want to let you know how great I think you, what you're doing with the Avengers. And, and, and I know Jack would be thrilled with what you're doing with Captain America. I said, thanks, Stan. Thanks, man. He goes, no, you're making all of us proud. We had done... A bunch of stuff together prior to that. Stan and I knew each other, but for him to personally, you know, give me that and give Jim that blessing, and then stand up on the podium and and, and give us his blessing and and tell us how excited he was that we were coming on to do this. Jim and I were up for this. We were up for this task. It had been a long, brutal contract negotiations. We had the weight of the world on us in that the editorial wing that would be receiving our discs, our 22 pages, was completely resentful, rooting against us at all times. But this had its tethers in the entire year building up to this. Because there's a gentleman named Ralph Macchio who hated this. Long time editor, exact same name as the Karate Kid Ralph Macchio. Except I encountered this Ralph Macchio before I encountered Karate Kid Ralph Macchio, because Ralph Macchio was writing some of my favorite comic book stories, along with Mark Grunewald, who I've already established as the long-standing Captain America writer. They were a writing team in the 70s and wrote such great epic storylines as Project Pegasus, The Serpent Crown Affair. They went on a tear in the 70s and really did some great stuff. R Ralph was always a co-writer with Mark, and then when Mark broke off and became a full-time writer, I don't remember reading Ralph writing any further, he became a full-time editor at Marvel Comics. And during this period, when I would visit Marvel Comics, he would have a dartboard with my face on it, on his door. And I think one time I appeared, they weren't ready for me to come in. And 
it didn't shock me. Come on. Rob Liefeld dartboard by Rob Liefeld editor. And I stood there in front of my own dartboard in the in the doorway and talked to him casually like, you think this bothers me? You think this dartboard bothers me? That's not going to bother me, man. I don't care. A year prior to this, Ralph decided, no, we shouldn't stand for this. Jim and Rob coming in is a terrible, terrible idea. It, it, it goes against everything we stand for. So he set about, huddled with his buddy Mark, and said, Mark, you know, probably they had a conversation that went, you know, if, if Cap Wolf doesn't exist, maybe none of this is happening, but that doesn't also excuse the terrible sales on the Avengers, Iron Man, and Fantastic Four that have nothing to do with Cap Wolf. But the only book that got an, a creative sea change the year before I came on was Captain America. Mark Wade had had tremendous success at, Mar at DC Comics, writing a huge amount of comic books for them. The big uh, feather in his cap was a huge celebrated run on a book called The Flash. You've all heard of The Flash, Fast, Fast Man Alive, Barry Allen, Wally West, uh, Impulse. Mark Wade was a huge part of the success of Flash, which was a celebrated DC comic. He was now coming on to write Captain America, even though there was an end date. There was a date that that book was going to end. Ron Garney had been a journeyman artist, but did not do journeyman work on Captain America. He stepped up the plate and did his best kind of Frank Miller approach. It was refreshing. They took over Captain America. They put out as much advertising as they were allowed to advertise it. There was a brand new direction on Captain America, even knowing internally that those books were going to go to me. They decided they would make a great run. And Mark Wade and Ron Garney put together a really nice, smart, impressive run that 100% failed to move the needle in any capacity whatsoever. The sales were immovable. And this attempt by Ralph to show Marvel editorial, and this is what he was trying to do, you don't need to go to them. We can handle this inside. We can handle this internally. That is what they were trying to do. They were trying to internally as best they possibly could show the new bosses. You don't need to go to the West Coast. You don't need to hire these traders, these guys that walked away from Marvel and went and started a rival company. We can do this. It was a great hire. Mark wrote some fun stories. Ron drew some great pictures. It was exciting. I was like, wow, I'm not going to be following Cap Wolf anymore. I'm going to be ex following this really well done run on Captain America. But I would follow the sales. I would follow the numbers. And the fans weren't coming along. They had not even been made aware of Heroes Reborn yet. By the time Heroes Reborn was announced, the Ron Garney, Mark Wade run had already been around for several months. Again, this was something internally launched trying to impress the masters and, sh and say, we can change this. It was getting critical acclaim. They made sure advanced copies of those books went out to as many reviewers as possible. And so that by the time I'm coming on, you know, my friends at the Wizard and the fan rags were like, oh man, I can't believe we have to say goodbye to this Mark Wade, Ron Garney uh, run in order to, you know, make room for Rob Liefeld. Because suddenly... This is the start of the negative that would be attempted to color this in the darkest uh, cloud possible, making Heroes Reborn this 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 kind of a terrible idea, this this terrible uh, uh, concession that the new bosses made to some rogue talent. The rogue talent being Jim and myself. Now they're already building a summer 
uh, kind of a late fall, uh, late summer 96. So this is after we are announced in winter of 96 as the deal is coming. The books will launch in September in the last quarter. Fantastic Four, Captain America Avengers, Iron Man number one, all coming out in the fourth quarter of 1996. There would be an entire summer crossover that would cover June, July, and August of 1996, where they would introduce this new threat called Onslaught that would try and destroy everything in the Marvel Universe, and and, and it came from the seeds of the X-Men and Professor Xavier himself. Uh, Franklin Richards was involved, they had the Fantastic Four involved, and this would set the set up the the road, the pathway that leads to Heroes Reborn, because the reality would be changed. The Avengers, the Fantastic Four, Captain America, Iron Man would all go missing. And they were in this pocket universe. I felt that this was a hampering to what we were trying to do. It was kind of a wink-wink, nod-nod, saying what Jim and Rob are going to do is not real. It happens in a pocket universe. We got them out of the established universe via Onslaught. Onslaught came and changed the reality and warped it. And when everything went back together, Cap is missing, the Avengers are missing, Iron Man is missing, the Fantastic Four is missing. Now we're in a, a pocket universe. Bob, again, at odds with us, but he's better, you know, he was going to be better than anybody else who was going to be at odds with us. Bob had conceived of a way to kind of minimize what was going on and saying, this doesn't work. Everything comes back to normal. And we can say that was a mistake, both creatively and in the real world, it was a mistake, you know, in the reality of going to Jim and Rob in the first place. By the time Captain America number one hit, like I said, I have been on this Heroes Reborn negotiations uh, all the way to production of the book train for 18, 20 months. It's been a long time to get there. Things don't move fast at the corporate level, and this certainly did not. But by the time we arrived, I'm going to take you back to the opening minutes that we shared here on today's podcast. Mile High Comics, Anaheim, California. The way Gone Run is done, it, it finished. It was a valiant attempt to show Marvel uh, New York that we could take care of this internally, but it just didn't take. It didn't uh, move the needle. The numbers weren't there. They couldn't even say that they added so much as ten to 15,000 copies. It just wasn't in the cards. Cap, it was further proof that Cap, Fantastic Four, Avengers, and Iron Man had been turned on by the fans, and nothing short of a huge, staggering event like Heroes Reborn, like bringing Rob Liefeld from X-Force and Jim Lee from X-Men back. Nothing short of that was going to work. We didn't have gimmicks on our covers. We had two covers. Fantastic Four launched with two covers. Captain America launched with two covers. Two covers, no scratch and sniff, no glossy uh, ink, no embossed logo. They were just comic books. 1996, September, driving into Mile High Comics, the cheering crowds, the long lines, the five-hour signing, Jeff Loeb going, is this what it's like? We had arrived, Heroes Reborn was happening after all the crazy contracts. Even amidst an entire division rooting for us to fail, the books were landing, and they were a huge, massive success with tremendous reception. And next time, we're going to talk about how and why that occurred. Why? Was it just that Jim and I could just, we just had the Midas touch? No. You had to have a good story. You had to have compelling images. You had to be able to move the needle, and that's what Jim and I did so well, and we were just getting started. Thank you 
for listening to Heroes Reborn Part 1. I don't know how many parts this is going to be. This is going to take a while. We're going to be here a bit. But Heroes Reborn Part 1 was such a blast. We have set the stage, the contracts, the conflicts. I mean, this is so much more than characters, okay? And next time you're going to hear Avi Arad, who was heading up all the entertainment division, say to me, I like you. You make X-Force. You put hardware with software. You give cable guns and, and team swords and knives. I like you. I sell lots of toys of you. Avirad and I had an epic meeting that I will discuss uh, in the next installment of Heroes Reborn here on Observations. Thank you for hanging out. This is going to be a fun one. I just decided to jump ahead because why not? They're celebrating. They're reissuing this stuff. I'm right there. We have skipped steps, but I think you're excited that we did because this is just like yesterday. For me, I think it's fresh for you. I am on social media at Robert Liefeld on Twitter with the blue check. That's the real guy. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Say hi to me. Blue check. Same thing. I'm the real guy, not the imposter. I'm all over social media. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for walking through 1994, 1995, and 1996. And this installment is We Examine Heroes Reborn. Come back next time. We're going to dive deeper and get further into Heroes Reborn. Thanks, guys. Take care of yourselves. Stay, stay safe and stay out of trouble. And we will talk again. Thank you.